This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 29th of August 2018. The topic is panic, agoraphobia, GAD or separation anxiety, teasing apart the anxiety disorders. On the panel we have Professor Valsa Epen, Chair of Infant, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UNSW and Head of Academic Unit of Child Psychiatry, Southwest Sydney. Scientia Professor Derek Silo, Director of Psychiatry Research and Teaching Unit at Liverpool Hospital and Academic Mental Health Unit, UNSW. Professor Vijaya Madakavaskar, Conjoint Professor UNSW, Director, Psychology Clinic, Black Dog Institute. And Shay, our lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. Okay, so we might um, just start off, and Shay, maybe I will start with you um, in that really, you know, talking about anxiety, it would be perhaps really useful for us to understand from your perspective, what's it like to experience anxiety and what impact does it have on your life when you experience anxiety? Um, Well, throughout my journey, it's, I'm kind of at a place now in my treatment where I've got a little bit more control over uh, my anxiety and I know how to manage it. Uh, But... When I, before I received treatment, um, it kind of got to the point where um, I wasn't really able to leave my house for a few years. So in terms of what I was feeling, I mean, right now I've got the sweaty palms and (laughs) my stomach is in knots. Um, But when it was really, really severe and had a huge impact, I just constantly had this sense that something was was going to go wrong. Um, and if I did, did ever end up leaving the house, um, it would have to be for a damn good reason. Um, and I kind of put on like a little bit of armour, so I'd wear my earphones and put sunglasses on no matter what the weather was like so that I felt shielded and protected. Nobody could really see my eyes because that was important for some reason. <laughs> Thankfully, you know, I work in an environment where uh, people are really aware of what's going on for me and proactively want to help me. So I still do experience some agoraphobia and um, my workplace picked up on the fact that I was like, I'd gone through all of my sick leave within a period of six months. And um, so now I work from home one day a week, which kind of helps alleviate the pressure for me. Uh, where I can kind of have a day where it's okay to stay inside and and just look after myself. Um, I am a massive flake. I tend to not go out to things, um, even though I say I will, if it's a party or going to a pub. Um, I can't, you know, go to Pitt Street Mall. That's just that's just an anxiety attack waiting to happen. Um, And, yeah, it's just really like these just uncomfortable physical symptoms. I get sweaty palms, my stomach is in knots, my heart races. um, And it's just the the thinking. I refer to myself when I go out to schools as worst-case scenario girl. Um, You know, if somebody's home late by 15 minutes, then they're likely dead on the side of the road in my mind. Um, So I'm really good at you know, going to the worst possible outcome and worrying about that. Um, it impacts on my, my sleep. Um, so I am on uh, medication to help me go to sleep at night. Without it, I tend to uh, be awake just thinking all night. 
uh, no matter how tired I get. I say all of that and I say that I manage it and I do, <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes it still does get the better of me. Um, and that's why I just continue treatment. I'm still seeing a psych every month. I see my psychiatrist every three months, see my doctor every month. So it's just an ongoing journey of trying to learn different ways to be able to manage it so that I can live the way that I want to live. Um, it, it's weird, I think, in the fact that I actually go out and I do, I talk about it quite a lot in considering my diagnoses. And what I've reflected upon is that I'm generally in control of these situations. Um, so I can go out to a school and I can present because I'm in control. But if I go to a pub, um, I'm not in control of that at all. So that's when I need to put in plans of, I say to my fiance, we'll check in in two hours and see how I'm feeling. And if I'm not feeling great, we're gonna leave after two hours. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, that gives us a very rich description. And so Derek, um, talking with you, um, the epidemiology of separation anxiety disorder is becoming more apparent to us now. Can you talk us through a little bit about what we know about that? <clears throat> well, until, um Fairly recently, we didn't know very much at all about it um, for the reasons we've already briefly discussed. The focus was on childhood and adolescence, as, as we know, in relation to separation anxiety disorder. And we knew that it is pretty common in juvenile anxiety clinics. In fact, if you go to a juvenile anxiety clinic, probably close to half of the kids there have got separation anxiety disorder, um, which manifests very often as school refusal, as you know. And that's why they brought to the clinic and that's why everybody gets concerned about them uh, because as soon as a child isn't going to school, it has all kinds of major ramifications. So it, it triggers a, a um, social, institutional and parental response. So we knew a little bit about the epidemiology of childhood separation anxiety disorder. We knew less about adolescent separation anxiety disorder. There are a few longitudinal studies underway. Uh, there's the, uh, in, in the US, tracking kids over time. And one or two of them have reached early adulthood. So we're getting more information about the evolution of all the anxiety disorders, but including separation anxiety over time. But there was really nothing known about adult separation anxiety other than the clinical studies that we had done at Liverpool and Bankstown, which tells you about the clinical situation. Uh, and what was striking about that was the what seemed to be very high rates of adult separation anxiety in anxiety clinic populations, but they were hidden, of course. They weren't diagnosed primarily with separation anxiety. They'd been sent there for other comorbid disorders, panic disorder, agoraphobia, and so on. And that could mean one of two things. Either they really did have comorbidity, so they had underlying separation anxiety, but also it had evolved into other things like panic disorder and agoraphobia, or they had just simply been misdiagnosed, and that we found to be quite common. In other words, if someone was called agoraphobic, but actually when you got down to it and interviewed them properly, 
they actually had separation anxiety disorder and people had missed that point for understandable reasons. It wasn't in the diagnostic book. And, and maybe Bija can talk a little bit about that distinction, you know. Um, but just broadly, we had no population data about this until two or three years ago when fortunately I was able to hook up with the uh, WHO World Mental Health Survey, which as you know is, is uh, headed by Professor Kessler in, at Harvard, where they've done these huge national surveys across multiple countries worldwide. I mean, really large studies, epidemiological studies, and then have uh, combined all the data from all these countries into one massive data set. So you could have 20 or 30,000 people in this data set, which was quite mind-boggling for me because we were used to samples of about 50 or something. So the statistics are extraordinary and the power to analyze this data is also dramatic because of the size. But what was this, and unfortunately because Professor Kessler had heard about this discovery in Australia. He included a module for separation anxiety disorder, not just for kiddie, uh, retrospectively for the childhood version, but also for the adult version. So you could look across the whole life cycle from an epidemiological point of view. And I mean, just to summarize the main findings, the lifetime prevalence of separation anxiety disorder was about 4.8%. So that's a rough figure. I mean, it's not exactly 4.8, but somewhere around 5%, which is pretty high that one in 20 people at some point in their life has a diagnosable separation anxiety disorder. The second finding that's relevant is that, and we all know this, but it bore, the, the data showed it, was that women have much higher rates than men. And that's across the age groups, that it's clearly a gender-biased uh, condition, uh, with women being much more susceptible than men. But that doesn't mean men don't get it. In fact, there was you know, reasonable representation by men. The next issue was that um, Interestingly, it, the rates of separation anxiety disorder were higher in low-income countries than in middle or high-income countries. So there seems to be some issue about living in situations of poverty, extreme deprivation, and so on. Um, and that had come through in the literature previously as well, is somehow related to separation anxiety disorder. Um, but I suppose the critical finding, which supported what we'd been arguing for about 20 years prior to that, but had fallen on deaf ears, was that if you look at the age of onset of separation anxiety disorder, so you get these curves which show you by age when the onset occurs, then it was a pretty smooth curve, meaning that, as Bolsa, I think, was saying, you don't suddenly, at 18 years, get this enormous... Uh, cliff face where it drops off and there's no longer onset. In fact, onset increased uh, steadily um, until 30, 40 years and then started to level off. So it's a less common but not impossible 
for someone, you know, over 40, 50 years to have the first onset of suppression anxiety disorder. And Vijay, you found a study, I mean, you found that in even elderly people. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it really dispels that notion that it's a childhood and adolescent onset disorder. It is pretty common for the onset to be in early adulthood and early to middle adulthood, and especially in women. And I think interestingly, and Valsa led this research at Liverpool, uh, there's really strong, well, reasonably strong evidence that it's particularly common in the re reproductive period for women, which, you know, it comes as no great surprise that pregnancy and childbirth and so on can be a trigger or at least an exacerbator of separation anxiety disorder under certain conditions with women. With women. So that really focuses attention on that period. But there was a strong association with early childhood uh, family problems, as you'd predict, in terms of all the attachment issues and so on. So kids or adults who reported, not kids, adults who reported uh, major problems in their families as, in children, as children, trauma, abuse, neglect, uh, separations and so on, were much more likely to have separation anxiety throughout the life cycle, uh, but more so early onset, mind you, as you'd expect, that it would come on earlier in those, in those people. And secondly, trauma in general was a strong predictor of separation anxiety disorder throughout the life cycle. So being exposed to a whole range of traumas, there wasn't anything very specific about which types of traumas. Uh, so in a way, um, to some extent, it could be seen as a form of traumatic stress disorder, I think. Well, thank you. That's, that's a wealth of information um, already for us. Valsa, maybe I'll start with you and then I'll come to Vij, starting with Valsa, more on the children's aspect of separation anxiety. Um, you know, Derek was mentioning that often it just, it's only when school refusal happens that people finally twig that this is going on. In children, how young should we be looking for separation anxiety and what would be the common features of it in childhood? I guess usually the children who are prone to having separation anxiety would be clingy temperamentally. The other ones would be very hesitant to warm up and you'd get that as a temperamental trait, but that could be a predisposition for any form of anxiety. But those clinginess can be an early temperamental characteristics. And then by about two years of age, when, when there is a real need to separate, you know, even if it is mom going to the shops or to the, the wherever, kind of that little separations would begin to create intense reactions in them. And the real thing that would break uh, the, the whole equilibrium would be when they have to be in a school environment, which if they start at preschool or kindy or whenever that is, that's when the real need for separation occurs where the child has totally no control over. Until then, you could kind of cling to mom and get mom to take you with you or whatever it is that they would manipulate their own little environment to keep the equilibrium homeostasis going. But when they are faced with having to stay in the school, mom is gone or whoever it is, dad is gone, then they are left there and that's when kind of the real intense anxiety related to separation. So that's separation or at the thought or 
of separation. So usually we call about, talk about it as the Monday morning syndrome. They would be very happy to go to school. It's not that they don't want to go to school, they probably like it, but it's just that separating from the attachment figure, which is the, the crux of it. So on, in the morning, they will find a reason why they can't go, and it could be somatic symptoms, it could be bad dreams, and there could be a variety of things that would uh, then lead into school refusal type of situations. But from then on, there is that peak when there is a real need for them to be away. So most of them would settle down with right strategies and other things. You may not even need to be uh, taken to, to, to someone to see you, but there are intense situations where it isn't settling at all. That's when they would come to the attention of medical professionals. Into, through the childhood, then another peak could come when they change from the primary school to senior school. So again, that could get triggered. And the same can happen with any type of loss, grief, any type of traumatic events, adverse events, then all those things can be triggers, just like change of school. So those kind of situations would bring it back on in a real big intensity. After that into adolescence, uh, one cannot say that it is crescent, but there is no real surge that could be explained in a, uh, in a way that would apply to everyone. But individual people, when faced with stresses of their own individual situations, can have exacerbations. But at a population level, there is no further peak at that time. Then the next peak might come when during that pregnancy period, particularly for women. So if you've had a lot of separation anxiety with your own parent, then you, it's, it becomes about your child or your child who's going to be born, or then it becomes you wanting your husband or your partner or somebody, who are somebody else who have placed this attachment onto from your parents to the new figure, and then it becomes a matter of bringing them or wanting to know where they are, or and that pregnancy seemed to precipitate or trigger that kind of anxiety again in them. And then once a baby is born, they could be looking whether the baby is breathing, the baby is turning this way or that, everything could trigger an anxiety for them that something untoward is going to happen. That's kind of the key thing that if you, if, if there is, you can't see that they are well and they are there and they are intact, something bad is going to happen. That's, 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 that's what kind of initiates them. So they would continue to have that uh, feelings. And if you have mostly separation anxiety not detected as separation anxiety, you could present as panic because that's what you are experiencing. Because So you would go to the doctor and say, I'm anxious or I'm panicky or that's the kind of symptoms they would present with or I can't leave house or when it is about the separation. So we, unless and until we kind of get to the story in that depth, it could be seen as in a regular consultation, it is somebody presenting with anxiety or panic or agoraphobia or whatever, you can call it anything you like based on what they tell you, but underneath is, is this particular separation anxiety that's a trigger for all these things. And what we then find is that most women would get picked up during the perinatal period because of the Edinburgh depression scale that gets handed out to everyone and everybody gets a score on this or that. And when people get picked up and then they are treated as general anxiety, depression, but there is this group of women for whom those conventional methods of treatment may not do the trick. Their panic might come down a little bit because of, of the treatment you give, but that underlying 
anxiety about this separation and the affiliation issue and that uh, the, the, the dread of something bad happening, those things are very attachment focused and relational and that doesn't get treated when you, when you just hand out a standard treatment for anxiety or depression. So in a way, I think it gets masked. And in our cohort, we had 25% of women from the antenatal clinic, even before they gave birth, um, giving high scores on, on separation anxiety. And there is a 43%, I think, in epidemiological studies where people say for the first time it happened in adult life after 18. It may be that they have gotten or it wasn't very great or maybe the events like trauma or other things that kind of got it to come to the surface no matter what, but there is considerable amount, up to 43% who would say, who would report that as far as they're concerned, it happened for the first time after the age of 18. So does that answer you? It answers it very well. Mm -hmm. And so Vijay, I might come to you. It sounds like it is a diagnosis that is commonly missed and, and sounds like also people aren't presenting saying, I have separation anxiety, please help me. What are the clin clinical indicators? What are the key features of the diagnosis of separation anxiety disorder? Sure. Well, I mean, as Valsa has explained, I mean, the, the diagnosis of adult separation anxiety disorder can be quite tricky um, unless a, a very thorough clinical assessment is made. And both Derek and Valsa has, have mentioned repeatedly the adult onset version of this, this disorder. And that's actually been one of the big um, uh, puzzles of why it hadn't been diagnosed in, 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 uh, you know, in adulthood uh, until we have, you know, now we have got measures that can actually pick it up. But it was because, precisely because as Valsa has said, it was, it was thought to be a condition of, of childhood. And it was never expected that, that adults would suffer from this kind of disorder. And, and I mean, successive revisions of DSM um, had always more or less asserted to some extent that, you know, it only, it kind of dissipated after the age of 18. So at the age of 18, you morphed into someone with panic disorder or agoraphobia or something else, but not separation anxiety disorder. So, you know, I think there was a real um, issue or, or, or clinicians were discouraged perhaps from making that kind of diagnosis in adulthood. So now that we've looked at it a little bit more closely, the measures that we developed were actually based on uh, a lot of clinical interviews that we did with, with um, patients with anxiety disorders, including panic disorder, GAD, OCD, I mean, a whole range of disorders. And um, what we were looking for was whether some of those could have had underlying separation anxiety disorder. So the... The signs that we were we started to see in, in clients or patients who had separation anxiety sort of were these recurrent worries about harm, um, some sort of harm coming to the people that they were closely attached to. So they would worry that um, you know if their partners went out for, to go for work, as soon as they hit the road, they were going to meet with a car accident, or if they went to the doctor, they were going to have a, you know some sort of fatal illness uh, diagnosis or some fatal illness. Um, they would worry about um, getting, if, the ones that were working would worry about getting promoted at work because they would worry about being asked to go on conferences or workshops or things that would take them away from their close attachments. So there was this underlying fear of being separated. There was a fear that something would happen to the people that were close to them, that something bad, very, very bad would happen. They demonstrated all sorts of 
shadowing type of behaviours, which are very much like the um, childhood separation anxiety version, where, where kids obviously become clingy, but adults don't cling in that way. But they might text their partners on a very regular basis. And, I mean, we've, we encountered many patients who'd ring their, their partners um, or close attachments you know, up to 20 times a day just to hear their voice, just to have them pick up the phone, to know that they were safe and that they were all right. Um, they would, um, I had, well, I've had several actually, but one in particular that was more recent, of a, a mother whose school-age children um, walked to school because the school was not very far, and she would hide behind cars to follow them to make sure that they got to school all right because she, she knew that they wouldn't want her to be with them because it's embarrassing you know, to have your mum walk you to school, but she would hide. So, so you know, there were all sorts of behaviours like that. And, and, you know, it did cause significant impairment for, for many people. Um, they, as I said, they would have, um, uh, you know, turned down job offers or promotions um, quite often they recalled interpersonal difficulties with their partners and close attachments because precisely because they were seen to be intrusive and uh, demanding of you know where these people were and what they were doing um, they um, sometimes demonstrated a level of of jealousy um, you know if their partners became um, you know, develop friendships with other people. Uh, so there's a variety of, of behaviours that they exhibited. And as, as Valsa has also mentioned, the anxiety symptoms that they suffer from can look like anxiety symptoms for many of the other anxiety disorders. So many people with separation anxiety would suffer from panic attacks, for example. Um, but the panic attacks would be related to fears of separation, and that's what was driving the panic attacks. Similarly, agoraphobic-like symptoms were related not to fears of panic attacks or, or physical symptoms, but actually reluctance to leave places of safety, so they'd prefer to stay at home. Um, but, but all of these require people to actually ask a lot of questions in, in assessing. So, I mean, there was some question early on when we started our research about whether, it, it look, um, whether some of these separation anxiety symptoms looked like obsessive-compulsive disorder. And it was because, well, they were obsessing about being separated and they, were compul they exhibited compulsive behaviours or repetitive behaviours to keep their close attachments around. So one of the things that some of the people that we interviewed uh, talked about was that they, they would talk a lot. They would talk to keep people around them so that they would hold people in conversation. Um, so there were behaviours that they'd exhibit that were um, different to some of the other anxiety <coughs> disorders. But mind you, anxiety symptoms, if you look at them just generally, they, can, you know, they, they are shared by many of the anxiety disorders. And, of course, GAD with the repetitive worries, it looks like GAD, but, you know, if you really probe very deeply, the worries might all relate to fears of separation and fears that, that something will happen to the people that are close to them. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so, Shay, you, you mentioned you've, you've had some treatment, you've got a treatment team. Yes. I'm interested in the different approaches people have tried for you with managing anxiety and, and what your experience has been about those different approaches that they've taken. 
Um, so for the first few years of my treatment, it was really all CBT uh, based with medication. Um, and that, the medication was really important for me um, as a first step because that really got me into, I, I felt more capable within my body to be able to actually think clearly and um, when I was experiencing anxiety, I had an inner monologue that was actively telling me to, you know, use the tools. So um, breathing and grounding actually work wonders for me. Um, but it didn't really, it was easier to manage, but it was still consistent and it was still this all-consuming anxiety that I was I was feeling it helped in moments of panic, but the general anxiety was still there. Um, and with the incident I had earlier on in the year um, where I was starting to have these seizures, um, I then started a new uh, type of therapy that was kind of a little bit more trauma-informed. So I went and saw a psychiatrist and um, she really wanted to focus on the uh, post-traumatic stress and the fact that that was, um, in her eyes, really driving the anxiety. So now with my new psych, um, we practice uh, schema therapy, um, which I've found to be so incredibly useful um, sometimes, you know, in my sessions, I feel like it's a bit hokey because my inner critic is a cushion and we put the cushion in the corner. <laughs> we tell the inner critic to go away. Um, but that sort of stuff actually really, really helps me in the real world now that I can kind of like look at myself and identify different parts of myself and having different modes and understanding that in different situations I go into these different modes um, to be able to cope and really understanding that um, a, a lot of my anxiety, it was a bit of a downer to hear at first, but it was good. My, um, so I was, I was abused and my mother was also abused uh, by my father. And um, understanding that as a, as a baby in the womb, that um, you know, I was still exposed to trauma as I was developing uh, through what my mother was experiencing. And, I mean, that's never a happy thing to go, you know, you, you've had this since you were in the womb before you even came out to the world. But um, it's, it's actually really, really useful to know that there are certain things about me that are just kind of hardwired. So, yeah, it's, it, a lot of my treatment is still ongoing. Um, but I think for me, becoming more informed about what, what it is that's actually been driving my anxiety as opposed to just the, the CBT was useful, but that wasn't really getting to the crux of anything at all and I was still experiencing everything. Um, whereas I feel like I've really made leaps and bounds probably in the past 10 months since starting the new type of therapy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Which kind of ties me in and thanks for sharing that, Shay, which is around kind of making sense of how you're feeling and maybe to check with you, Derek, like, um, some people feel anxiety is anxiety and you, you can learn your 10 strategies and it doesn't really matter what drives it, what the underlying anxiety disorder is, whereas other people feel it's quite nuanced. Why is it important for us, for example, to understand if someone has an underlying separation anxiety disorder or not? 
Yeah, well, I, I often ponder that question. Um, and I don't think we know the answer to that entirely. I mean, if, if we're looking at uh, the, the, the data, then it appears that people with um, pure separation anxiety disorder, and in the population studies there are people who just have separation anxiety disorder, they appear not to be especially disabled overall. I mean, they have got disability, and there's no doubt about that, but it's not extreme on, on the whole. Um, and there's an interesting pattern there that people in low-income... You'll remember I said people in low-income countries have higher rates, women especially, um, than in high-income countries. But the disability associated with separation anxiety disorder is lower in low-income countries. I hope that makes sense. So there are more people with it, but they're less disabled. And it makes you wonder whether it is about the collectivist, individualist difference in culture. So Western societies may be less tolerant of someone who has separation anxiety. They expect you to be independent, unlike clingy adults and so on. You're supposed to be autonomous and all that sort of thing. Whereas in collective societies, it's quite okay, perhaps, to be strongly attached. And, and in fact, it's a good thing to be strongly attached to, the, to others and the people around you. Um, when there's comorbidity, then, of course, the uh, disability increases greatly. And the more comorbid problems you've got, the worse it gets. So you might, you know, like one model of separation anxiety disorder is that it's the boundary between normative and pathological is quite grey, actually, because attachment, of course, is an important survival mechanism for humans. Most people can't really survive on their own, especially in the wild. So having separation anxiety is actually a, a good thing for survival and adaptation. But if it gets extreme and severe and inappropriate and complicated by other anxieties, then of course it becomes a, a problem. So it's more perhaps what separation anxiety generates rather than the problem itself that makes it uh, problematic. I mean, on that point um, that Derek's mentioned too, and, you know, we would like to know more about how to treat this disorder because it is, I mean, the prevalence rates are quite high. But, you know, every time we try to do a study on, <laughs> on this disorder, you know, they seem to, everyone seems to vanish. So <laughs> we never seem to get enough subjects. But it, it appears that, I mean, firstly, it's difficult for people who aren't really looking for it, to recognise it, because it, it's, it's so easily masked. And as Derek has mentioned, families can also, um, you know, can, can hide it. Not, not necessarily intentionally, but because everyone behaves in a certain way that, that kind of keeps the status quo, so it's actually quite difficult to, to tease it out. And, and sometimes the sufferers themselves are quite uh, oblivious to it as well, and, and the... Um, or, and the anxiety that they might, the secondary anxiety that they might have, sometimes also takes over because panic attacks are pretty nasty. So once panic, people start having panic attacks, then they go to the doctor and talk about panic attacks, and of course then they get treated for panic disorder. So there's lots of reasons why it's not actually um, recognised, but it has made trying to work out what works with this particular disorder very, very difficult. I mean, I've treated a few patients just um, 
on an individual basis rather than a you know in a, in a group or anything like that. And I, I think one of the things that is very helpful is um, I mean it, it really does rely on a very good therapeutic relationship for a start. So it's separation anxiety. So you know the the attachment to the therapist is actually very very important. But it's also about I think um, it's like a two pronged approach. I think. In treatment, what you've got to do is you've got to teach people strategies to bring the anxiety down, the overall anxiety down, so that the general anxiety management strategies will still be effective, but not completely effective, but they will actually help reduce that level of arousal. But then there needs to be more specific strategies that deal with the specific anxieties that this person has. And those kind of strategies might include CBT, but they might include a lot of other um, types of interventions that will help someone look at their relationship, uh, relationships with their close attachments in a more sort of a objective way and work out strategies to deal with, with those separations. So it could be even, uh, you know, instituting a program of, of desensitization to longer and longer separations and teaching them skills to, to hold that, that anxiety or deal with that distress. But uh, I don't know if Valsa, you and Derek would like to talk about, uh, I mean, I don't know medication-wise whether there's any... Any, um, in your experience, whether there's anything that helps in that regard? I mean, there is uh, a little bit of evidence, uh, a few uh, recent studies uh, where the uh, typical so-called antidepressants, SSRIs, have proven to be useful for separation anxiety. Definitely in, in some kids, uh, I don't know if you use it, but also now in, in adults. Um, if you speak to vets in Sydney, they'll tell you that they spend a lot of their time treating separation anxiety in dogs. And uh, they liberally give out antidepressants to dogs. Um, and they, they're convinced that they work and that's kind of a standard treatment for separation anxiety in dogs, which is a major issue. Um, uh, whether dogs and humans are similar in that respect, I'm not sure. Vich, I'm curious, just staying with you around treatment, because it's often a relational issue, do you tend to invite the attachment figure into yeah, was, the therapy? Well, yeah, I was just going to say that, yes. It, I mean, I think for effective therapy, you might need to include the attachment figure in therapy, but not, not always, not, not, it's not always necessary to have them there, but at least they've got to, they've got to agree to the... Uh, treatment plan that this person, you know, might not be encouraged to call so often or to request request that person be around. So yes, it's it's ide uh, in the ideal situation it would be good to have the the you know, the, the close attachments um, on board as well. Well, and, well. and and where it gets complicated is with sorry, did you no, want to continue? No, with no. where um, and I think we've probably all seen these patterns where the mother has separation anxiety and the child has got separation anxiety and school refusal. I mean, you usually find it out the other way around. That is, the child's brought to you for school refusal. And then if you canny enough, you realise that the mother's got separation anxiety. And in a small study we did, there was a very strong association between maternal separation anxiety and separation anxiety in daughters especially. So it seemed to have a gender trajectory through the generations and you can imagine how difficult it can be to break that nexus. Yeah, I think, I think that relational side is, is very important. Um, 
when, when you're treating children, of course, if the anxiety is predominant, if the panic symptom is, uh, is the glaring thing that you need to first attempt to, then you would use medication, and particularly SSRIs would help calm those things down. So in acute phases, that is particularly very helpful, as you were saying, that it kind of gives you that uh, it calms you down enough to then psychological methods or other type of things can sink in and uh, become more effective. Otherwise, you're just so anxious. You can't hear anything. You can't take in anything. You can't practice anything. So for that acute phase, it is very important that we use it when it is needed. And uh, that can be a real lifesaver for people to just move on or start to go to school or whatever it is that they need to come back to functional level. And then it is the long-term prospects of how do you kind of keep them well without having to relapse and kind of attend to the root cause of it, if you like. And in the maternal um, separation anxiety, particularly during pregnancy, it's particularly important for bonding and attachment. Because if you are scared stiff about the safety of your baby or something bad is going to happen, how can you bond with that baby for the worry? You're so worried stiff that something bad is going to happen. How can you have a pleasurable bonding affiliation experience with that baby, but that, that's the kind of core thing that's driving you. So in those instances, I think it's incredibly important that in addition to treating the anxiety that you look at some of these issues that's going on for them, because otherwise, what we found in one of the studies that um, Derek and we did in Liverpool is that we followed up a cohort of women. We saw them in the antenatal clinic. We got them to tell us whether they have they did questionnaires about anxiety and separation anxiety and depression and so on and so forth. We looked at their oxytocin levels. And so, of course, we all know now the panacea about the oxytocin. That's a, but the crux of it is that that's a love hormone. That's a hormone that kind of gets released when you are in a very intense, whether it's a romantic relationship or when you're bonding with your baby. The idea then is that you have a big kick when you are in that bonding or that relationship when you are, you're excited, it's a kick come from the oxytocin released into the system is directly linked up with the dopaminergic reward systems. So you get that reward, the kick out of that experience. But for those women who had low oxytocin levels, we found a direct relationship with them reporting an insecure attachment with their own parents lot of adverse experiences when they were younger. Father abuse, father indifference came up. Um, all kinds of attachment difficulties with their own mothers and parents came up. And in one attachment style questionnaire, there were four subscales. One was about the confidence. So it was a positive subscale. If the score were high, then it was good. And the other subscales were about um, interpersonal dependence, um, worry about uh, separation, need for approval. They were all in the negative uh, subscales. What we found was that a higher oxytocin level linked up with the confidence subscale, but the lower one, lower oxytocin levels showed higher scores in the other three subscales. It was the same questionnaire, but when you look at the subscale, it was so directly linked up with each other. And then we, we are following up that cohort postpartum. Now the babies are now three and a half, four years of age, we are looking at the intergenerational transmission. And one of the striking things um, was that all that experience that they were relating to and the oxytocin being low or high or available to you to use now, 
seems to have been the foundations were laid when you were a child, when you were a baby. So you are primed, your oxytocin receptors are primed. And there was also other studies that we both found in terms of links with oxytocin receptor genes, whatever it is that that experience that you have forms the basis for your oxytocin receptors to be very sensitive. And so when there is that positive thing happening, your oxytocin is released, you are primed up to be kind of all positive. That's in the, in the context of a secure attachment. But if you come from an insecure attachment kind of background, and you are having this baby, when the baby cries, you're like, the baby is out to get me again. No matter what I do is going to comfort the baby or I'm no good. And you know, so that insecurity then becomes more of a, a, a difficulty in bonding. And then that, of course, is going to affect the baby's own attachment pattern. So it's incredibly important that in addition to doing whatever we need to do to get the person back to functional level in terms of treating the anxiety, the panic, and with using medication, whatever you can. But in some of these instances that we really look at what's going on for in that relational side so that we can address some of that for a longer term, better outcomes for both the mothers and for their children. And the same goes for um, mothers and <coughs> children when they come with school refusal. You know, it's a bit of a yeah, it's comforting for me if you stay back from school because it, it's good for me. It's not a conscious way of withholding the, the child, but the vibes are mutual that you, know, you don't want to separate. And so it's very important that we, at some point in time, in those situations, that we, we get to the root of it and try to address it. I mean, one it. of the things that Derek and I have often talked about is that separation anxiety seems to be a very fundamental type of anxiety. It's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it is, it's hardwired to some extent in us. And, um, you know, it, it, it manifests in times of great stress or trauma or, you know, when people are physically very, very unwell, quite often they will want people that they're attached to to be with them. And it's a, it's a kind of a normal response. It's, it's a very hardwired anxiety, which makes it also very difficult to treat and decide where, where it crosses over into disorder. So it's, it's a tricky one. We've tried using straight CBT on you know, people with separation anxiety, and, and they're, they're very good at challenging their thoughts and doing those experiments and stuff like that, but they do still feel the anxiety. They still feel uncomfortable. And there's something um, nonverbal about this anxiety, I feel as well, that they, they feel it deep within themselves and they can't always articulate it. It's almost like a feeling, it's a feeling of discomfort or insecurity. That's the best way to describe it. It's just uncomfortable. And it's not always cognitive. I might check with you, Shay. You know, you've been taught lots of ways to deal with anxiety. Has it reduced your anxiety or has it made you live differently with the anxiety you have? Like what has been the impact of all this? all that you've been shown? My anxiety's definitely reduced um, over the past few years. So that was like that three-year period where I really couldn't leave the house um, and I, I can now. So my anxiety is clearly reduced, but the way that I live my life is, is much different now as well. Um, I kind of need to, you know, be aware of a lot more and anticipate that I'm going to feel anxious in, in certain situations, which just means that in some ways, like, it's, it's a good, I'm hyper-vigilant, and that's a, a good and a bad thing. Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm a lot more organised now than I used to be because I need to prepare 
and um, make sure that I've got control over everything so that so that I don't I don't feel anxious um, you know it's down to if I'm gonna go and do a grocery shop I finally weaned myself off only doing online grocery shopping so that I can actually go into the the shopping center now and just being aware of the fact that I need to go in there with a list because if I don't have a list then I'm gonna get agitated by the amount of people and the lights and trying to figure out what I need and that's gonna make me have an anxiety attack so um I definitely need to be a lot more organized and kind of aware um of of yeah certain situations that I, I just know out of past experience are always going to trigger some anxiety and I would love for it to be the case that that would just go away and that I could just go to the shops without a shopping list and that I would be fine but that's it's not me that's that's not who I am um, so I've definitely had to make adjustments but I think overall um, that's that's good because I can leave the house now and I might only be able to go to the party for two hours, but at least I'm still going to the party now as opposed to before. I, I wouldn't go at all. And, um, you know, my friends just thought I didn't like them. <laughs> Do you feel there's a difference in your willingness to feel anxious? Like how willing you are to put yourself in those uncomfortable yeah. situations? It depends on what it's for. So for this instance, I knew I'd, I'd feel anxious, but this, you know, this has beneficial outcomes for, for people. And so, so that's okay. I would like to avoid situations where I know that my anxiety is going to be out of control, but like little mild, like little doses is, is okay. Yeah. I think also I'm just really used to feeling anxious. Um, so it's just, it's kind of like a, a scale of how, how anxious I'm going to be. I'll stop if it's going to put me at an eight. Um, so breathing techniques is really, really useful for me. Um, and I tend to use those when I've got anxiety attacks and then I've got bad anxiety attacks. <laughs> And so when it's an anxiety attack where I still have some sort of cognitive ability, um, I can use breathing techniques to calm myself down. And, but everything that I do, I need to know the science behind. So I needed to fully understand what breathing was doing before I would actually do it. So I needed to understand that by bringing my breathing rate down, I was helping my heart rate go down and my blood pressure go down and that's stopping you know, the stress hormones from coursing through my veins. And, and so I needed to understand why that was. Um, and I'll use breathing like before I step on stage to speak at a school, I'll breathe to bring myself back down. I use grounding techniques when it's a bad anxiety attack if I'm still able to. And usually I'll need to have um, my, my partner help me um, in, in starting that process and doing the you know five things that I can hear, smell, taste, touch, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and also using, um, I can disassociate quite easily. So using a technique, I've got so many things plastered to my fridge, but I've got this like little speech that if um, I'm kind of stuck in a post-traumatic stress episode that I'll read out, which is like, you know, I am worried about this and I'm remembering this, but this event is not happening right now. 
I am here, I'm in my kitchen, I'm with my partner, and that will help bring me back down. Um, yeah. Well, and I think you, you, remind, you keep reminding us, and it's really important that you do that, uh, share that, you know, these, I mean, we've got this old problem with anxiety about classification and whether they should all be lumped together or separated into little categories. And we've never resolved that. I mean, interestingly, over my whole career, we've been debating the same thing and never come to a clear conclusion. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, most people really have a mixture of symptoms and, and I think you're describing that. And probably some dominate at certain times and others other times and so on. A question from our audience. Can you talk a bit about the overlap between borderline personality and separation anxiety disorder? And, and I think that raises a really major issue about, um, if you like, borderline personality and separation anxiety. Because in some of them, in many of them actually, if you give them the measures, they come up, they go through the top of the scale. They, they all score incredibly high on separation anxiety. So what do you call that then? Because it's, but it's embedded in all the other borderline issues and so on. And I mean, I think it would be interesting if um, someone was brave enough to really just focus on the separation anxiety amongst what we call borderline personality and just sort of ignore a lot of the other stuff and just see whether that may actually be the thing that is really, because they get into a complete, as you say, I mean, it's, it's more than panic. It's um, a state of absolute terror and kind of disintegration at the, at the thought of separation. And maybe if we address that properly in a more focused kind of way, maybe we'd be doing a lot of therapeutic good. I'm interested, you've, you've kind of alluded to trauma as having some relationship with separation anxiety. What, what do we know about that and how does that inform what you do? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in many ways it is a traumatic stress disorder. Uh, not everybody reports trauma with separation anxiety disorder, but a lot do. And, uh, and there is this close association with PTSD, actually, um, in, the, in the epidemiological literature. Um, and, you know, almost from an evolutionary point of view, you could see PTSD is mainly being a personal response to trauma. In other words, it's fear for the safety and survival of the self. And the reciprocal side of that is fear for the safety and of others following trauma. Because, uh, I mean, as a collective species, the, the two are so integrally involved with each other. Uh, your survival is dependent on the survival of the group and vice versa. Uh, we, we'd be pretty vulnerable on our own out in the wild. So it seems to me to make evolutionary sense that you'd have that somewhere embedded in your psyche is the understanding that to survive, you have to be safe but your safety is dependent on the integrity of the group and the safety of those around you. And they sort of, you, you can't separate the two. So it doesn't surprise me that PTSD and separation anxiety disorder are often comorbid in trauma survivors. And in some of the analyses we've done, it's almost like a 
post-traumatic separation anxiety disorder where PTSD and separation anxiety disorder symptoms are sort of coexisting and form a more complex kind of picture, uh, almost as one syndrome. And I think that's interesting that, uh, that they kind of converge in that way. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel for this evening. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.